You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I am producer Sophia Javage, and I am joined with Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Michael Barr. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. We are, are so excited here to have Michael Barr with us today. Michael is the executive managing director of the Utah Shakespeare Festival and has been a, a longtime member of that organization, among other things. And We've wanted him here uh, for some time, and so we finally have cracked the code of his busy schedule. And just to be, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Michael and I have known each other for, what, 20-something years? A very long time. A very long time. Yeah. So I think more than that, actually, because I've been in the area uh, since 98, 99. 2000, yeah, 2001. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time. So what what I'd like to do is to start with always is kind of a how we get to now question. So if you can just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and and where you came from and how we get, not like how you get to be sitting here, but how you get to be doing what you're doing. Cool. Uh, I, uh, so I consider myself an educator first, uh, but a long time ago, I graduated from Richfield High School, Richfield Wildcat. Uh, I was raised on the Wasatch Front and then my uh, my dad uh, took a job in Richfield, Utah. It was my senior year of high school. And so you'd think, I only spend one year. Why do I claim Richfield? I really enjoyed uh, my time on the Wasatch Front. I participated in a lot of theater and debate and multiple events. But that senior year in high school was formative uh, to me in rural Utah uh, because of all of the opportunities I was able to have in that small town. I mean, it was it was really opening uh, where I was able to do many, many things. Found out about Southern Utah State College at the time. Came down and participated in the Shakespeare competition. Uh, 1982, I called myself the world's smallest Petruchio. I played, got a scholarship. Uh, probably would have ended up going to another school, but was introduced to Southern Utah State College at that time. Chose to go to school here at Southern Utah State College, which then became Southern Utah University. Loved the education. Uh, learned from Fred Adams, Scott Phillips, um, Gary McIntyre, all these amazing, Doug Baker, all these great, you know, theater faculty, and then uh, really kind of sucked the marrow from the bone, uh, took advantage of everything down here, was in student government, was in uh, all sorts of leadership and clubs and associated that way, and then uh, found education. So I I knew lighting, I knew sound, I knew acting. It was an acting scholarship that brought me here, but what really flipped my switch was directing, and then what later really flipped my switch was was education. I mean, I, I just really loved that. Uh, there was an opening in a in a school in Bakersfield, California. I went down to Bakersfield, California, and I taught down there. There was a Shakespeare competition actually down there, the same Shakespeare competition that inspired the formation of the Shakespeare competition up here, which I don't think a lot of people know. Um, A woman woman by the name of Peg Polly would take her students up to Cedar City, and they would compete and take trophies home and go back to Bakersfield. But our Shakespeare competition was started back in 1977 by a man by the name of Ray Jones, who was a friend of Fred's, and said, you've got this great Shakespeare theater, and you've got this access to these great actors. You should be doing a competition like what they do in Bakersfield, California. So uh, that was formative. Uh, In that melting pot in Bakersfield, California, I was able to do a lot of things that were community-oriented, 
drug and treatment programs that I would take my kids out to, meeting my students, and we would uh, use theater as a tool to train. I think theater is a great tool. Uh, we would do plays about um, uh, environmental safety and environmental awareness and uh, mental health way before it was cool to do that. Type so, of stuff. like theater PSAs. Absolutely. Well, theater PSAs, but we'd go into junior highs and high schools and that. I like to say that everything I learned about my present job, I, I learned teaching high school, learned how to be a producer, learned how to be a marketeer, learned how to, you know, do all of those things. Did radio, uh, you know, those type of things. And then uh, we moved back to Utah. And then in, in 1998, Fred Adams called me and I like to say I was dragged kicking and screaming out of the classroom into the present position which was education director at the time. Uh, they were looking for somebody who spoke the language of teachers and the language of um, students and the language of professional actors, and I spoke all those cultures and languages. And in the first three months, wasn't really sure if I really wanted to do it. It was a lot of budget and policy, but we sent our touring production out on the road, and our professional company manager called up and said, this school is in contract violation. The Wizard of Oz is on stage. Do we cancel the performance? I said, no, 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 no. Here's what you do. And I realized that I did have gifts in kind of networking and negotiation and um, trying to make it a win-win for everybody. And um, yeah, and the rest of his history ends. And I was uh, for 24 years the education director, and we built numerous programs, solidified, and the further growth of the Shakespeare competition, our touring production, which goes to Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Wyoming, Idaho, created um, juvenile justice, um, uh, correctional facility performances, um, and the, the Wood No Symposium, you know, academic things, uh, basically using theater and Shakespeare as, as a tool for amplification of other things. So... Tell me about this moment when you're living in the Wasatch Front as a, you get ready to start your senior year, and your dad comes to you and says, hey, guess what? We're moving to Richfield. Oh, yeah. Now, I was the old, so I'm the oldest of seven, and I was at the top of my game, man. You know, I'm playing in all these, I mean, I was a pretty nerdy kid. I'm a pretty nerdy adult, too. But, you know, here I am at the top of my game, and and my whole family's going to move. And so we were going to, we were going to stay up there. We I mean, they had talked about, well, you can stay with an aunt or an uncle and you can finish your senior year. Don't want to miss out on your senior year. And for me, it was it was game changing. I'm I'm so glad at that large school. It was, uh, you know, Mountain View High School. I went to Orem High and Mountain View High School. It was the second year that had been open, would have been second graduating class. And um, I was involved in everything, but not like what you're involved at in a rural school. I mean, a rural school, it's all hands on deck, which I'd never experienced before, you know. Uh, so have you, have you always wanted to do what you do? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> Meaning, you mean like, you being know, executive th- managing director? No, 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 no. Th- uh, being involved in, in theater in general. And no, I get, I get no. education, yeah. but, but what is the, first of all, what did you want to do? Not, not like, you know, I was going to want to be an astronaut. No, but, no, no, no. No, this is a good question. Uh, no, I I didn't know what I wanted to do, which I love saying in an educational setting, that, because everybody thinks you got to know. So, I was going to be. I was a gifted and talented, ADHD, you know, hyperactive, doing multiple uh, activities at that time in my life. I was going to be a doctor. My dad was a social worker, so I said I'm going to be a social worker. Maybe I'll be a teacher. 
But theater was the last thing that I was going to do. And my parents actually encouraged me, which a lot of parents don't encourage their kids to go into theater. They said, you're so good. You need to go into theater. Oh, you have a great career in theater. And we went to the theater and we enjoyed theater. And they thought that would be a great career choice for me. And I went, ah, yeah, I need a mortgage. You know what? Really? And, um, but I had a scholarship, got me in. I said, well, I'll, I'll let it pay for my education and I'll knock out all of my GEs. And then came down and met Fred and Scott and a number of other uh, earth-moving you know, movers and shakers, uh, served a mission for my church and had, of all things, my mission president said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I think you should do that theater thing. No, what? Really? So there's tons of people encouraging me to go into this and me going, I don't know if you know what you're talking about here, but I was, I was passionate about it. I mean, I loved it, all aspects of it. Uh, what I loved about education here is Fred insisted that everybody be educated in everything. So if you're an actor, you better know how to aim and focus lights. You better also know how to do costumes and set and all that type of stuff. And I, ooh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So I, again, that's why I say I sucked the marrow from the bone and did all of that. And um, I am a good actor, but that's not what flips my switch. What really gets me excited is getting other people excited about theater making ways successful for them. So to answer your question, um, there were multiple things that I was looking at. And now, in retrospect, I look back and the life makes perfect sense, just a perfect. But at the time, as we were jumping from, as I was jumping from interest to interest, um, did multiple things. I don't know. That answers the question. So I guess the the other thing is, is that when these folks were encouraging you to go into theater, they weren't encouraging you to go in theater education. They were saying, oh, you need to be an actor. No, they all, yeah, they all said that I needed to be an actor. And uh, if you look at me now, uh, I mean, I played 13 year olds until I was 30 years old. I mean, I looked really young. I looked like Ernie on my three sons. I looked like Ferris Bueller. uh, So I was really young and high energy. Uh, All of the roles I was playing were very nerdy, quirky character, steal the show, cameo type of things. And actually, when I came into school here, uh, I went, what type of career am I going to have playing 13-year-olds, not realizing that that's actually a pretty, I mean, it worked well for Matthew Roderick, uh, that there's actually a career there, because uh, a director is not going to hire a real 13-year-old. They're going to hire some 25-year-olds who has the sense, it's like Juliet. I mean, when mm-hmm. you get someone who can actually really play Juliet, she's not 14. She's got to have all that great, you know, spot to do what she's got to do. So, um so those were the type of roles that I was playing, uh, but I, because I was also politically savvy, uh, I, it was really easy for me to learn all of those kind of multiple aspects. When I first got here, my first year as a freshman, I played Eugene in The Matchmaker. I don't know if you know that show, Thornton Wilder. Um, Hello Dolly is based on it. Later at the end of my career, I played Smike in Nicholas Nickleby, which is an eight-hour production that the RSC did. Fred rehearsed from January to May, and then we did this four hours one night and four hours the next night. And the character of Smike is perfect. It's it's like the swan song for the type of roles. It's a uh, kind of a physically challenged, um, handicapped boy that needs to melt the heart of the audience and um, so I was playing those those type of roles and really enjoying them. But as we were talking before, um, uh, I I really love 
challenges that also involve a whole community, networking, bringing a whole community together, creating that. So uh, education wasn't the plan until after I had filled up my cup and realized, oh, wow, you know, as a theater teacher, I can be a producer and a marketeer and a philosopher and a psychiatrist and a director and a light designer and a set designer, all of the things you have to do. So what I'm interested in really is this code switch, right? Is that that there has to come a time when you say, yeah, this isn't, this, this is not what I want necessarily as an actor, Mm. uh, but, but I want to be a teacher and I want to teach theater, right? I mean, they're not Mm. mutually exclusive, right? Right. So it's not like you will have people who will say, well, I, you know, I, I, I did my acting. I want to teach or I, I am not going to see where I'm going to go. But you made a conscious decision mm-hmm. to not pursue that out out of college. Right. Right. Except for maybe the Grapes of Wrath role <laughs> that happens. But I think that ultimately this oh, idea oh, of, yeah. of of making this. So, I mean, I'll, I, I'll act if I'm called upon. I mean, David and Brian, uh, David Ivers and Brian Vaughn would say, hey, we need you to come and play this. And I played. Uh, I mean, I, I still enjoy that. You'll find me occasionally you know, doing community theater, which I actually really love. Uh, there's something really, really cool about a community theater when you, you're acting on stage with a plumber and a, you know. College professor. College professor and your mechanic and, you know, all the type of stuff where you're all kind of, uh, which is different than professional theater. So if, if that is the case then, how often do you legitimately and really regret not staying in the classroom? No. Oh, in the classroom? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was going not regretting being. I don't regret not being an actor at all. An actor, that's hard life, man. Because uh, you say but I was, I was dragged kind of kicking and screaming out, and I know that's not necessarily true, but oh, if, but, you, but you if, know, if you, this gig, if if this gig that I'm presently in does, it, I would happily go. And a lot of people don't say that. Oh, you know, I'm tired of the classroom. I love the classroom. Uh, Shauna Mandini, our dean, CPVA, you know, really amazing. She. Uh, uh, she asked me to come over and teach a class, Theater Methods for Elementary Teachers, and uh, I started doing that like two years into me being here. I taught all the way. I mean, it's it's fantastic. It, it That's that's my real joy. And then I, I'm really good at all these other policy, budget, all those type of things. But if I had to go back, I'd love it. And you know my departure. I mean, I left for a time. I left for about three months, left the festival to be a principal which was also magical. I called my wife up. I'm on the playground, you know, keeping bullies away from each other and, you know, having a great time. And I called, I said, I just found my calling, man. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a, a playground attendant for the rest of my life. (laughs) I mean, it was so cool. And I had to hire playground attendants and I couldn't find anybody to do it. One woman who was amazing, she lasted a week and she said, I can't do it. I, I, I just can't do it. And I think every principal should spend the first month on the playground because every kid that's going to come into your office, you're going to know them. You're going to know exactly who those kids are. And I did. I mean, it was it was really, really fabulous. So, yeah, the code switch. Uh, the code switch is um, – I uh, and why do I love – I mean, when you, if you really want to get into education, I mean, we can talk about Plato and Socrates and, you know – and all those other highfalutin Greeks. Uh, yeah, exactly. Ooh, look at that. Yeah, yeah nice job. Way, way to quote a music. So I guess what, what, I, what, I, what I'm thinking is, let's talk a little bit about the festival. So you, you know, the festival's been around for, you know, 60, what, two, three years. Mm-hmm. And, and you come in as a student in the high school Shakespeare competition. Yes. And, uh, and, and kind of 
love it, but think nothing of it. And then you come back here to, as a teacher, you bring your students back mm-hmm. to the high school Shakespeare competition. So the festival's been around for we did very well. 20, 25 years mm-hmm. by the time, maybe 30, mm-hmm. that you you get this phone call. And, and at the time, uh, the festival was fairly intimately connected with the university and CPVA. Yes. And that's not necessarily true now. But but my question is, is that that you what is the goal then at the time and now of the Shakespeare Festival? I mean, it's what, the fifth largest regional festival in the country, and it brings in mm-hmm. uh, tens of thousands of people into Cedar City still. Yep. Uh, it, it has a very loyal audience. But but describe the festival that exists when you come in, in 1990, whenever. I, I think the mission, uh, and this is easy for me to say this, and when you think of it, we've been around for 63 years, it's kind of earth shattering that I've known them for half that time. When I look at those plays that I saw in 82, my dad came down and we sat, there was a little wooden bench around the Adams Theater. And those were the seats that we could afford. You could buy them, uh, you know, $8, $5, and you'd sit up there on those. And that's where I first fell in love with Shakespeare. I mean, I really, really loved it. Um, I think it was building a community then. I mean, our mission is to cultivate and celebrate and amplify these classic works, uh, these classic theatrical works, Shakespeare and all of the other classics. And as we do that, we've got multiple visions and values that propel that, but our our mission is to do plays of consequence. Uh, you can go to any play, and you could say that any play has a consequence, but the plays that we do at USF, whatever, pick pick this last season, pick the upcoming season. They are, they are consequential stories, and that's why I keep working there. Uh, I like to tell this story. I mean, I remember when I saw the Cherry Orchard. Not a large audience that showed up for the Cherry Orchard, and I would sneak into the back. I'm an employee, so I would come on and I'd watch, you know, that Cherry Orchard, and the musicals and the comedies and all those other things made it possible for us to be able to do these stellar classic works that speak to the human soul, that talk about what it means to be human. And I think that's what the Shakespeare Festival is. Um, We are doing plays of consequence that tell us why we are human and what it means to be a human and how we relate with other individuals, and um, which is a different mission. Now, we also have an obligation and a commitment to SUU, and I think we are tied just as closely to SUU now. Uh, we need SUU, and SUU needs us. Uh, the services that SUU provides to this region, providing a 42 to $45 million economic impact with all of the visitors that come in here, uh, that's pretty impressive. But what's even more impressive is the impact of of families and individuals soul to soul sitting in an audience and having a theatrical experience that they can't have anywhere else here in Cedar City, Utah. We have people who come from across the nation and say, wow, we can't get that anywhere else. So I think we are illuminating, we are lighting the light, we are keeping that dream of classic work, not fuddy-duddy work. People will say, wow, I read Shakespeare in a classroom, but it never came to life to me until... I saw it on the stage, and I know you do our seminars, and you know what I'm talking about. I mean, those patrons, I mean, they are truly moved um, at once they get it. And I never understood Shakespeare until I saw it live, and I saw it in this space. What I really think, I mean, t- to me, it's this idea of, of what you're, you're, you're asking people to continue to believe in what is, mm-hmm. 
what is critical and what is important and what is real in, in humanity, especially in a time when it's needed the most. I, I guess what I'm really saying is, is that, you know, Fred is still, when you get here, part of the drama faculty mm-hmm. at, the, at the college, and that, that will change. He'll move over full-time at the festival. And so I think but he that, was equally, I mean, he was super passionate about that. And as a professor, was incredibly passionate telling those stories. And uh, so I think... I think young little Michael Barr, who first found Shakespeare when he was 13, I think I found, I think I had that. But then when I saw the possibilities of what it could be, I mean, I still remember sitting in one of his classes as he's, I mean, a lot of... So we should say that Fred Adams is is the founder of the Shakespeare Correct. Festival and had been the long time, a long time drama professor here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, passed away three or four years ago, mm-hmm. but but he is the the one that we refer to yeah. as the 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 creator. Correct. Yeah. No. He well, and he said, "Hey, I'm going to build a Shakespeare Festival in the middle of Southern Utah, and people will come from all over the world to see that." I mean, I remember him talking about those things. In '61, he threw a bunch of his students in a car. He then drove them up to Angus Bomer's creation, which is the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And then he drove them to the Stratford Festival, which, as far as I'm concerned, is is the creme de la creme. Uh, but it was just starting out, which is over in, in Canada. And then he went down to Stratford, Connecticut, and then he brought them back here, and he said, okay, that's what we're building. And with a team of community, professional, and students, he built this, again, that, that kind of ensemble um, I like to say that he surrounded himself with people who were smarter than himself. I mean, he surrounded him with a team. Uh, but again, this vision of making this um, theater theater for change, not theater for activist change, not theater for, oh, we're going to teach you something here. But uh, you, you, are a, you come out at the end of the play uh, kind of like a religious experience where you are are a better person than when you went in before. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, in some ways uh, a secular slash spiritual form of church, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and and with that point, let's move to our first, our first break. As you know, if you've listened to our show before, we ask our guests to select a, a few songs that we choose uh, to play during the break. And the first song you selected was a song called Take Me to Church, by Sinead O'Connor. So can yeah. you briefly tell me why you chose this song and why it resonates with you? Yeah, this this is a great song. I didn't know this song. Sinead O'Connor just passed away. Many of you may know Sinead O'Connor as the Irish, you know, singer. You know, she was known for her bald. And when you and I were growing up at Saturday Night Live, I mean, she did some pretty controversial things there. A great singer, great. In fact, some people thought she sold her soul. You know, you missed your opportunity, you know. How can you do that on national television? Look it up. You've got the internet. You can find out what she did. Um, so she passed away, and I went, ah, oh, and in mourning for her, I went, um, uh, I want to listen to some of her songs. And I found this song, which we she wrote much later in her life, and I went, that is an incredible song, which essentially says, take me to church, not the church that we all think is church, but a church that will change our lives. This is what I, it's about redemption. It's about what's truly important. It's kind of what we were just talking about here. It's, I mean, beautiful lyrics here. So you can hear her sing them, but look at the lyrics. And, and for me, uh, I know people that have left churches because it doesn't do it for them because the churches aren't doing what they should do as opposed to, yeah, this redemption that she's looking for. It's a fabulous piece. Okay. This is Take Me to Church by Sinead O'Connor. Songs for 
That was Take Me to Church by Sinead O'Connor. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you. That was an audible gasp. Were you going to say something? I was. I was going to say, I, the other thing I love to do is introducing people to things they haven't heard or seen before. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, Sinead O'Connor, people know that. But yeah, that can become a new favorite song, man. I, I think it's, it's good that you say that. I do think it's a little awkward that you've decided to come bare-chested, but... Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> you know, Thank you, Ryan. So uh, I want to talk about Shakespeare, not necessarily the man, but, but you know, we, we, you and I have talked about this a, a lot, and we have different ideas about, you know, Shakespeare's plays and, and, mm-hmm. and what's good and how academics have either enhanced them or not so much. And, I mean, we all know what Shakespeare's best play is, and we don't have to say <laughs> it, but it's true. Uh, but, but my question oh, it'll is, come out. my question is, you know, there's a generational shift here, right? That, that for many people in Fred's day, you know, people are surprised to know that the, the school did not have a connection with Shakespeare until Fred got here. I mean, they've done it three mm-hmm. times in their history. And then mm-hmm. he and he even doesn't dig into it until he realizes that, you know, it's, yeah. it's not as expensive. No to, royalties. To do those things. Right. Yeah. So so let's talk about the, the plays themselves, because I'm sure you as an educator have to answer this question of of all of the other content that's there that, that is 
you know, more speaking to the direct people of today. Why is Shakespeare still relevant? Oh, because it speaks to the people of today, man. It, it, it's fantastic. Uh, and yeah, I'm a Shakespeare guy, so I love it. But uh, at 13 years old, if you want to go back to that story, I had an English teacher who was running an acting class, and she said, you need to do Mark Anthony from Julius Caesar. French Roman's countryman, lend me your, arm, your ears. And I opened it up. And Dad, he had a Shakespeare works on it, but when I, re- I mean, it was a it was amazing. And the cool thing about Shakespeare is once you unpack it, you will never get to the bottom of the well. The bottom of the well, you'll always continue to find stuff that you can apply to yourself. So why is it relevant today? Um, well, I, I just it, think that it, it doesn't, you find stuff not because the words of Shakespeare change, no. but because you do. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what's important also is that that you discover more. You're in a different time in your life. Right. And, and I think that's important. I mean, do you think, about. I mean, I love Lerner and Lowe. Uh, I love Rogers and Hammerstein. And there are festivals that are dedicated to them. But the great thing about Shakespeare is it'll it'll appeal to you in a different way than it will to uh, Sophie or, or Evan or anybody else. I mean, there's different things that, that stick to you with it. So, I mean, we could talk about, you know, the plays and why they've lasted 450 years plus, you know. Um, but it... I think it's the humanity and the way Shakespeare wrote, his characters present arguments. Uh, So I don't think Shakespeare's plays, the Victorians, I think, looked at it and said, Shakespeare's plays have all the answers. Um, I'm not presumptive like that. Shakespeare's plays ask all the questions, but they don't have all the answers. He asks all these questions, and at the end of the show, you go, whoa, what, what? What about that? And you have to wrestle with that on your own, and then that makes you a better individual. So he asks, um, these characters come out and uh, basically have conversations with the audience. I don't think a monologue is one person standing up on stage um, talking to themselves. Instead, they're they're asking God, they're asking the heavens, they're asking themselves, they're searching for allies out in the audience. Why do we do this? Why are we about this? So uh, now, I think Shakespeare, the man, was an entrepreneur and knew how to make money and was really good at writing, better than the people who went to school. Uh, they called him an upstart crow. I mean, he was the Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, um, Quentin Tarantino of his time, stealing scripts, putting together, ooh, this will be really great. Now we put it out here. But he, Matt Groening? Uh, yes. Yeah, very much so. And you and I have had these conversations that, you know, we put him up on the shelf because he needs to be studied. I mean, pretty amazing. But if your only entry point is to study, and I, because I'm a nerd, I, I do both. I study him on stage. I study him alone when I'm reading him. I, I love reading what other people say about him, too. But the scholars don't own him, and the actors don't own him. I think it's the middle ground and because I'm a teacher it's the teacher who actually owns them because what's the best way to really understand Shakespeare get up and put his words in your mouth and then start saying that now what did that do to you oh my gosh that yeah Ooh, did he mean this how on how on earth can I talk about this mm-hmm. how on earth did a guy who lived that far away from me in a different place understand me so much um I was really uh going through a, a dark depression sprite. I, I, nobody knows that. And, you know, how can Michael Barr be depressed? But I walked out, stood at the back of the Adams. They were doing a play, and they were, and this monologue was going on. And I went, oh, my gosh. How does he know me? 
How did he find that? Specifically, it was from Henry VI, Henry VI Part Three. Uh, Henry VI is tired of this terrible war that's going on. He sits down and he goes, oh, that I could have been a shepherd and I could have taken care of sheep. I could have taken care of this, but where I am, there's daggers in men's eyes and I have to sit on this purple pillow and drink these things. And wouldn't the curds and the, and the milk, the simple milk that the shepherds are drinking taste as nice as these really beautiful things of wine. I mean, it'd be nice if I could quote it right now for you. Well, but no, it, it's like that old, uh, the old shaker hymn, right? Simple gifts, right? Tis a gift to be simple. Yeah. Tis a gift to be free. And we complicate ourselves with that. And I think that, that what excites me about it is that we, we've lost sight sometimes of Shakespeare's writing for people like you and me. Yeah. Right. He's not writing necessarily for you know, no, somebody he, in a big ivory tower to, no, to tell me what it means. Yeah, he, he literally said, hey, let me throw this entertainment out there, and i got to make it appealing to these people. I mean, I like to say that, you know, the people who sat in Shakespeare's balcony, I mean, you got the rich folk up there, and then you've got, you know, the the rodeo fans, you, you've got the NASCAR fans, you know, they got blue collars sitting on the floor, and he has to entertain both of them. And so he does it with sex and violence and values, but he speaks in a language that the commoners, the groundlings go, yeah, you know, and they really, and he has to write in that way. And it was, that's, that's not how Shakespeare writes. Oh no, it is when you really get, and so I'm grateful that I, one reason why I'm so passionate about Shakespeare competition is that's 3000 kids that we are inoculating, that we are giving the taste and they'll never go back. It's, I know you're going to ask me later in the program about what some of my favorite shows on. I mean, Breaking Bad is one of the greatest television series on television and I have never been able to find anything to match it. Oh, Better Call Saul. Thank goodness. Oh, and now, you know, and then that was gone. I can't find anything to scratch that itch. And Shakespeare's the same way. I mean, it is, it is so resonant if you if you're there and take the time. And I think that's one of the things that you have to do. You gotta get in the place. First 20 minutes, I've seen people go, ah, my wife dragged me here. Whoa, I kinda, I kinda like this. Oh, wow, I kinda like this. And, and he kinda meets you where you are. So what's the, what's the gateway, right? So, you know, we, we all went to school and we all had to read Romeo and Juliet. And, mm. you know, if you really had a bad teacher, you had to read Hamlet. But, uh, <laughs> but what, what is the the gateway, right? What for, for someone who is not in a class or whatever else, if someone came to you and said, I really want to understand, you know, the, the words of Shakespeare, I, I'm just, I'm always put off by the language or whatever else. What's the gateway? Well, what I would do is I would throw out a bunch of my favorite monologues that nobody had ever heard of before, favorite scenes, and I would throw it out and they would go, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Whoa. They cut off her hands and her tongue and then let her wander in the who is this sadistic guy? You know, oh, well, this is, this is Titus Andronicus. You know, let me introduce you to this. Oh, uh, now let me introduce you to this amazing Richard III where a guy tries to propose. We just talked about your upcoming proposal. So he's talking uh, to Evan. Yeah, Evan's across the way and he's, he's going to be getting married soon. Can you imagine he's going to try to woo her so that she will say yes and get married, but it's over the coffin of her dead husband. That he just killed. That he just killed. And at the end of the scene, she says yes. And it's one of the most incredible. And after I show that, uh, and I don't show it because that's that's a mistake. Is A lot of people will, 
I never showed videos of Shakespeare. I showed videos of a bunch of other stuff when I taught film classes and that. But I would say, look at those. T- oh, what is, you know, what is, what, what's he saying there? What, what is that? Open your mouth and say those words. Oh my gosh, those are incredible words. Nobody, nobody speaks like that. That's, that's great. And then they just can't get enough. Um, so the next question for me, obviously, then would be, and I realize this is like asking what's your favorite song because it depends on your yeah, and I didn't, else. Yeah, I, I didn't answer that question. So I start with text, and I know what text, I know where the secret ones are. And, and Richard III, that opening scene between Lady Anne and Richard are, is incredible. And I just show him that, and I go, we're going to study this guy. So what is the play that you come back to again and again and again? Me? Yeah. Uh, that is a different one than what I introduce students with. Uh, my life-changing play, my favorite play is Winter's Tale. It's, it's, in, it's incredible. And I, I saw it on stage on The Adams. I'd never seen a piece of theater like that. And then I went and, and read it over and over and again. Every production I've seen, we're doing it this upcoming season. It, it's incredible. And I've never seen a perfect performance of it because I think it's super hard to get right. But the first half of it is full of this guy who thinks his wife has cheated on him. And so he throws her in jail because he's, he's the king and he casts out the baby that he had from him. And then the second half is this beautiful comedy. And uh, will this lost baby who's now grown up eventually be reunited with a father who now forgives himself? And spoiler something magic happens at the end of the show and it's magic it's not explained our modern audiences can't wrap our heads around it and I went who is this guy and this is later in Shakespeare's career so I think he's also experimenting I think he's trying to figure out uh, I'm tired of telling stories this way I want to tell stories another way when he started using the cannabis yeah, I know. I don't know if he used cannabis or not. You know, that was, yeah. that was over in the <laughs> yeah. new world, man. But uh, I know you love Pericles, uh, and you you came to me when you read it. He said, "This is incredible. I love this play. It's got pirates and a brothel, and I mean, those are the stu- that's what we should be studying, right? Pirates I, and brothels. Yep. Yeah, you yeah. Know. I think that. I mean, it, it, if that's the case, so you, you know how I feel about about Pericles, and then I know how you feel about the Winter's Tale. So, so Winter's Tale specifically, then, why isn't it one of those that, that is more well-known? Because it's not going to sell tickets. And, and, and it also, there's a reason why we study Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is a really great play. And then we've just done it to death, and it's become part of our educational system, thankfully. Uh, and Hamlet, I mean, you're not going to find a better treatise about the human condition and existential crisis and why are we who we are and what is man to be or not to be, you know, rogue and peasant slave. I mean, all of those, there's a reason Hamlet is, is great and sells a lot of tickets, but it's commerce. I mean, Winter's Tale is not going to, we had people this summer saying, wow, that time of Athens, you've only done it one other time. Why? Why don't you do it more? It, it, it actually works. Um, but you got to sell tickets too. Yeah, and that's sometimes you got to be nice, and sometimes you got to be naughty. So, as Shakespeare would say. So, let's move on to your next your next song, which is uh, actually "Naughty" mm-hmm. from the musical of Matilda. Yeah. And this version that we found actually is a version that features all four of the original Broadway Matildas, because you know they're kids, so they can't 
run the show, they have to have multiple Matildas, right? Yeah. So tell me why I chose when this. When I heard this the first time, I literally started weeping. That's the type of guy I am because it is so powerful. It talks about Shakespeare in it uh, and about how they didn't change their story. It's, it's, it's a story of rebellion and power. And uh, you just listen to the lyrics here. I mean, and uh, which for me, I'm a bit of a rebel. Uh, if you don't like the way your story is going, you have the opportunity to change it. And Matilda says, sometimes you got to be a little bit naughty to get what you want to do. And when I heard it, I went, oh man, I, I just want every kid in the world to know this lesson. So yeah. Okay. This is Naughty from the Broadway musical Matilda. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pile of water. So they say the subsequent fall was inevitable. They never stood a chance, they were written that way. Innocent victims of their story. Like Romeo and Juliet. It was written in the stars before they even met. That love and fate and a touch of stupidity would rob them of the hope of living happily. The endings are often a little bit. Why they didn't just change their story We're told we have to do what we are told But surely Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty Was naughty from the Broadway musical Matilda. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSU Youth under ninety one point one. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. 
Let's turn it back to you, Michael. <laughs> oh, Roald Dahl, man. Don't you love Roald Dahl? Everybody thinks, oh, here's a lovely children's juvenile uh, literature, and oh, his plays are so wonderfully dark and life-changing. As his books are. Yes. Even darker and more life-changing. Yeah. So I, I, you, you at, the, at the festival, you're essentially the... You're the executive managing director, so mm-hmm. essentially the buck stops with with you mm-hmm. to a certain extent because the buck really stops with the president of the university. But but ultimately, you're held responsible for everything that goes on there: business operations, artistic operations, those kinds of things. And I would imagine that your phone rings a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so I know you have lots of other things that you do in the community and and in your faith and with your family. But but how do you? How do you keep from going home and just putting the pillow over your face and yelling profanities <laughs> at night? Uh, I do find joy in collaborating. That's my biggest joy. It's tough when people don't want to collaborate, when it's just you know their way. That goes back to the teaching thing. I, uh, I think I'm, I enjoy running a classroom, and not in the traditional classroom, but we're all in this together, and we're all going to learn and facilitate this learning together. So I think... Working on a project together and facing it that way keeps me going. Uh, the real truth, I actually love digging in the dirt. So when I get home, is that what you're looking for? I mean, I love working in my yard. I'd be very happy if I could just, you know, plant bulbs and pull weeds and and do that. That that gives me joy. It doesn't stress me out. I actually really enjoy that type of work. So that that keeps me going. It's tougher in the winter time to get out and do that. It's tough in the summer because I don't get to do that by the time it gets dark. I'm not able to get my hands dirty or, or that. So having, uh, think about theater people is a lot of, we don't often have hobbies because we spend so much time at the theater and because that is our, we are so all encompassed. Uh, I mean, if you go into the theater, uh, it's not nine to five. I mean, it's, it's, 6.30 in the morning all the way until the crowds go home and then you start all over again. So for me, I like hiking. I like uh, the great outdoors. Uh, I had to run an errand up the canyon and uh, I went, oh man, I needed to come back here again. So yeah, I think nature has, uh, and I think Shakespeare knew that too. I mean, he was a man, you, you know he was raised in Stratford because he talks about nature a lot too. Well, and there's a lot of, you talk about collaboration, there's a lot of hours that go into what people see for that oh, two yeah. or three hours on stage. Yeah, right? and, and, no, they have, yeah. And even after, you know, even after the actors go home, for example, there's still there, yeah. lots of people that are doing lots of things to reset and to move forward. I actually really enjoy, if you, uh, I, I wish you could just sit in the festival offices and because I work all sides of the clock, there are people who are there at 6.30 in the morning there are people who are there at 3 a.m. There are people who are there at 4. I mean, I can set a clock by all of the different duties that happen to keep the theater. And that's also all through the year. We, we have 30 full-time employees, 350 seasonal employees, and 350 volunteers, at, plus all of the university support that, that keeps the festival going. And um, the other thing, on really rough days, I will go and I will stand at the back of a house and I know exactly what moments certain things are going to happen. And feeling the crowd get hit with a moment for the very first time, that, that wonder that happens when they laugh or they go, oh, or, you know, all that type of stuff. I've watched not from the front rows of theaters. I've always watched from the back because I can see the audience and see how the words and text hit them. And that, that for me is what it's about. Way, and I learned this trick back in my old days as an education director when I was writing grants. 
it'd be really tough in June. Why am I doing this? And then I'd walk back and I'd stand in the back of a house and I'd go, ah, that's why. Okay, got it. That's a very interesting leadership principle that could be expanded on at some point, right? This idea of watching from the back as opposed to watching from the front, because many people want to watch from the front or to be seen from the front Mm -hmm. as opposed to the back. So I got to work the whole house, but there's a different client that sits in the front of a theater than the client that sits at the back of the theater. And we need to touch all of those people. And the people who are buying these seats up front and the people who are buying them in the back have very, very different reactions to the piece of theater that they're seeing. And I like seeing it come from the actors all the way through there. So, yeah, I just gave you a bunch of things. My yeah. garden, in addition to all of the other stuff. So for, for the last couple years or so, and, and we've had um, Derek Livingston, who, who was the interim artistic director, Amazing. who yep. has been on the show before and, and did, some, did Thurgood for us for Apex. But I, I, and, and you had been an interim uh, person you were actually brought in to, to fill the space until they mm-hmm. get someone permanent. And very recently you hired the, the new artistic director, John D'Astino. Antonio. Antonio. Dian- John D'Antonio. No. Mm-hmm. I knew someone in high school called A.J. D'Agostino, and that's why I brought that up. So I, <laughs> John, I'm sorry, but uh, we've never met. Michael's kept us apart, but I'm sure you're great. Uh, but the, the you are not interim anymore. You are the executive managing director, and, ah. and, and this team is being built. So... So now that interims are gone and, and, and Fred, you know, has passed away and, and I realize his core vision still exists, but what does the future of the festival look like? The future of the, uh, it is built within our staff, our volunteers, and the legacy of all of the individuals who still continue to come and will continue to coming. I am so excited when I do an orientation and I go, how many of you know Fred Adams? And the number of people who know Fred is lesser than it used to be. And people go, oh, I wish you'd know Fred. I wish you did too. But this is just proof to me that Fred's dream is continuing. It's that whole believe thing that we're asking for. We have new audiences. So the future, the future of the festival is in the new artists, new staff, and new patrons who are coming to partake in the vision to, to, I always use this uh, ambrosia, food of the gods. You know, uh, they they are they are tasting that food of the gods for the very first time. So, we have to be ready to lean into the legacy, in addition to uh, greeting our new our new generations. Uh, so the future is Shakespeare competition. The future is uh, all of these young students who are experiencing it for the very, very first time. I mean, that's, that's, and they're there holding the hands of their grandchildren. We have multiple generational families who have came with their great-grandmother and their grandmother and then their parents. And that it is, it's, and the reason why the festival has survived all of these years is because it has learned to adapt and be what it needs to be for that next generation. It was very different in the 70s, very different in the 80s, but it was also the same. So there's a way that you can greet Shakespeare and theater where you are and continue to. And I, and I actually think Fred intentionally, he, he and Scott took care of the locals, 
but they always hired artists from New York and Chicago and all that so that they would look, look at what we can bring, look at this collaborative thing that we can bring together and learn and experience together. Fred would take his students out to New York uh, or to London and would show them and they would bring them back. So very much like bringing them to the hearth and exposing them to the new thing and then applying it to yourself. So that's a complicated answer, um, but uh, the future lies in the future. Uh, and which doesn't mean uh, I remember when we used to do that we need to do it that way all the time uh, I mean I think Shakespeare you think Shakespeare would have used special effects back in his day oh he, yeah he did I mean he had a can he burned his theater down because he shot a cannon and it caught it on fire and uh, I mean he was always looking for ways to tell his story but the key is it was the story the story was fundamental and you don't get in the way of telling the story and then the stories will resonate with you so the festival story will will grow brighter and continue to oh shine. absolutely the, as you have said uh all of these amazing we built on the foundation of what we have and to the future okay let's move on to our to our our last song before our final uh segment this is a song called Jump Rope by Blue October. Do you want to very briefly tell us why you chose that? It speaks for itself. Uh, life has ups and downs. Okay. That's it. Jump Rope by Blue October. Turn it up to go. 
That was Jump Rope by Blue October. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSU Youth under 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. It's time for our last segment, which we always enjoy about the, the joy question. So we'll start with you, Michael Barr. What are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? What brings me joy is every Tuesday and Thursday before I drop my grandkids off to the school is we watch Teen Titans. We watch Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go. I did not know this series. My kids were raised with it. And then this Teen Titans Go, man, the writing is incredible. If you have not found that, it's incredible. I mean, I laugh out loud. Just incredible. Incredible. Okay. Thank you. Teen Titans Go. Uh, Evan Miller, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Yeah, so recently uh, with a group of friends that had not seen this movie, but I had, I introduced them to Catch Me If You Can um, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. It's a great movie. So we watched that last Sunday or Monday, but um, super captivating, a really good story. Fantastic. It's also a great musical, too. Turned into a musical, too. Those theater folk, man. (laughs) It's a good one. Bands on the stage and everything. Sophie Javage, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? So Evan and I are in a marketing class, and in this class we're taught to notice marketing all over. And we were talking about they just made these new Spider-Man movies, kind of-ish, and it's called... They made a second one for, like, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It's incredible. It's so good. It, like, mind-blowing. It's, like, oh, Like, the, the future of cinema. It, I, I, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and the way they tell the story, it's incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's so cool. And so that's currently what's bringing me joy. I've, I just sit there the entire time looking at every little part of the screen because it's so cool. Yeah. And you thought the first one was great. And then the second one, blow your mind. So good. Yeah. Except I didn't know it ended in a cliffhanger. Oh wait, I haven't. Well, I haven't oh, finished yeah, it. I'm like so halfway through. She's it. focusing oh. on all the images. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm looking at everything. Yeah. You know who I had I someone say, with? "Who's that?" Mariel Bono. Oh so really? Yeah. No, it's incredible. I I had someone say, "It's so busy." I go, "Yeah, that's the point." I well, mean, for ADHD, yeah. yeah. How can you not love <laughs> I know, it? Yeah, man, exactly. <laughs> it's great. Okay, Ryan, <laughs> what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy this week? I uh, discovered a show with my five-year-old daughter that we were watching one day. It's on Apple TV, and it's called Interrupting Chicken. And it's very similar to what Michael about in, uh, Teen Titans Go in the sense that it's apparently it's based on books, but it's this little chicken, girl chicken named Piper, who loves story, wants to be a writer. And uh, as they tell stories, she goes into the story and fixes it and has a little song as she goes in and helps Jack and the Beanstalk and resolves the issue with the giant and Jack and uh, all these other things. It's just a fun fun show and they talk about perspective and 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 words and it's really so good. meta all all four of our choices are so meta yeah, so yeah interrupting <laughs> chicken well we would like to thank uh, michael barr the executive director the managing director of the utah shakespeare festival uh, we're grateful for all of you who wa- who listen to the apex radio hour and uh listen to our podcast so we're going to go out with uh, the last song you chose which is a song called without me by eminem what do you got for us? Yeah, I, you want an introduction? I I, j- I, I do love Eminem, uh, which is something a lot of people don't know about me. I mean, I just love uh, listening to this. And this was about his return. I mean, he, he had left, and then he came back, and uh, baby, I'm back. And I found I found my first months in coming back to the festival a lot of joy, actually, in this song of you know uh, life without me and life with me. And uh, it's kind of fun, kind of revolutionary as well. Okay, we'd like to leave you with this question. 
What is your story going to be? Think about it. Tell us about it. And we'll leave you with uh, Without Me by Eminem.